All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined by, as always, by my consistent co-host, Mr. Mark Eastcow. Mark, oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. And, uh, you know, consistently have been, you know, doing the soccer reveal and the climb is back. The climb is back. I got to climb today. I'm in the office. So I got to do the climb. And all right, the Bitcoin bull mm. is back, baby. And uh, mm. I thought maybe we lost him. And I was going to have to put on the uh, the crypto winter for the groundhog, but I I don't know. I think I think we had a, a pretty testy retest, and now uh, we've had a nice little double bottom pattern. So I'm I'm feeling better, feeling better. Mm. I think we had a uh, for those of you who don't track the price of Bitcoin, it's <laughs> probably as much as Mark and I do. Uh, we had a pretty big dump uh, earlier this week. In fact, we were on a call right. I think like right after that dump was happening. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Dan Tapiero as well, uh, who'll be at DAS uh, this coming week, um, and we we're getting a little concerned. It, Bitcoin bounced hugely overnight. Um, I I feel like this might have something to do with unwinding of you know the ETH Bitcoin ratio has really been just a one way track up. I wonder if this is this is people basically unwinding. And getting out of that trade, approaching the merge. Um, okay, I, I think so. You know, people keep saying, "Oh, it's going to be such a big deal and it'll be this big run up." I don't know. I'm I'm on the other side. I'm on a buy the rumor, sell the news. Um, you know, I hope Travis Kling is right. In fact, we should have Travis on sometime. Um, Travis yeah. is great. Runs Icky Guy. Yes. Uh, we were early investors and, and meaningful investors, and and you know, he's convinced. Well, you know, I haven't talked to him for a couple of weeks, but he was convinced that, you know, uh, ETH was going to, to 10,000. He even thought to do it by the end of the year post the merge, mm. but he may have changed that in recent weeks, but uh, would be an interesting conversation. What's his rationale for that out of curiosity, if you, um, if you can explain it? Yeah, I, I can't. And that's why I think we should have him because <laughs> I, I don't really get I mean, I understand the core of the thesis, which is, look, this is the building blocks of applications for DeFi and for uh, you know many of the things that we think blockchain is eventually going to be used for. Uh, I get that. And the ERC-20 has, has kind of established itself as a, as a core. And then there's the ERC-55 and these other things. Um, again, I'm not so technical that I really understand the nuance of the merge. I, I still don't like proof of stake. Just, I just, I'm just against it, generally speaking, because I think it allows people with large holdings to exert undue influence. And that's kind of what we're trying to move away from with decentralization. So I'm, I'm still a proof of work fan, but he very eloquently lays out a case for, for why that should happen. A lot of, you know, I don't know if we want to talk about the other stuff, but that other show, I don't even want to mention the name of that other show, but um, because people shouldn't watch, well, they should watch that other show, but they shouldn't watch it as much as this show. And they should definitely use Mike 250 to sign up to come to New York next week. I mean, let's get this going, y'all. Yeah. We've got we've got a really honestly, I mean, I'm biased. We're gonna be on a panel. It's gonna bring down the house. You me, Dan, Bill Barheight. Uh, we're gonna be doing bulls, bulls and bears, basically a take on the next 12 months of crypto. We've got a really great showing. Um, Moorhead's gonna be there. He's gonna be speaking with uh, I think I mentioned this, one of the Tomasek guys, great, uh, you know, very institutional um, kind of round out there. But again, a lot of the folks that you've heard on the show. 
Danielle DeMartino Booth, you know, Alfonso, Yuri and Timur, uh, Mike Green, just very institutional showing for crypto. It's going to be a ton of fun. Guys, well, Jack and- is winning. Yeah, Jack is winning in this. In this, so Jason's Jason's in the dust. So we can yeah. we can okay. we can right, chill up our That's want. good. That's but, good. He he who shall not be named is in the dust. So that's good. <laughs> but but we got to fix. Look, we mm. you know collectively here. Mark your mic. Uh, mm. Mark your mic in the morning. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, maybe we should change the name of the show. Um, mm. Go on ESPN. Be good and. Uh, <laughs> But here's the thing. People should use Mike 250 and come to New York, not just to hang with us, because that, that's mm. a good reason to come to New York, but also because it's just great to be back. I did a day trip to D.C. the other day, and uh, it's just great to be back. I'm excited to, to come to New York. But most importantly, you know, we got Bill Barheit, ex kind of CIA guy. Uh, and I had, a, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a guy in South Africa, of all places, um, halfway around the world, which I love. I love the digital age. Yeah. Right? I love the fact that I can have a conversation in real time with someone halfway around the world. And he made the most compelling argument, like not crazy conspiracy theorist argument, but an actual argument for why Bitcoin was created by the NSA and the CIA. So we got Bill on our panel. So I think in addition to the, you know, very calm, stable, institutional conversation, we should go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. That I'll, I'll, I'd love to ask him about it. You know what? The, one of my favorite, uh, you know, I was when I was a kid, I read a lot. Um, and now I mostly listen to podcasts, but I read a lot of like fantasy fiction type yeah. books back yeah, then. Yeah. Now when I read, I love reading uh, uh you know, nonfiction, true stories, because real life is stranger than fiction. There's stories oh, that happened out there that yeah. actually happened that if you yeah. were written in a book, you'd be like, this is so unreal. Like yeah. this would no, never happen, no but they do happen, happen in yeah. real life on a very regular basis. Um, actually, I'll shill, I'll shill a podcast that has been shilled to me. Shout out Riley if you're listening to this by people like Riley for years, the show acquired. And you know, it's like the Game of Thrones effect. You know how when mm-hmm. there are those people that haven't watched Game of Thrones and they've been listening to so many people say you need to watch Mark. Mark, Mark. Okay. All right. So, but basically, I'll tell you why. Probably, I'll give you my story why, but keep going. Keep going. Because right. people have probably told you over the years, like, you got to watch this. And eventually you're like, enough. But people have told me to watch this show forever called Acquired. It is so good. They do these deep dives into like these great businesses. Uh, I just listened to the Standard Oil one, which is going to oh. come up uh, oh. in the show. The John D. Rockefeller story. Incredible. Oh, no, but no, I no, listened no. to the. Yeah. Have you guys heard? Have you heard? I'm sure you probably have. TSMC. I listened to the TSMC story. You know that was founded by a 56-year-old guy? I did not know that. Guy. I love. Nine, I lo- hey, yeah. as a 59-year-old guy, I love that. And uh, look, yeah. wisdom is underrated. But here's, here's the reason I, I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. So my family, like my daughter, my wife, they're all into it. They're watching it. I'm just like, okay, whatever. Fine, fine, fine. I will watch. And I sat down. <laughs> and it turned out to be the Red Wedding episode. And within oh. seven minutes, 23 people got killed. And I was like, I'm out. I'm like, this is dumb. This is not interesting <laughs> to me at all. I'm out. And I've never watched another oh. minute. I watched seven oh, minutes Mark. of Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah. That's so devastating because that was like, 
that's a seminal moment in my TV watching, content consuming life and experience. It was so I couldn't believe like my mouth was on the floor when I was watching <laughs> that episode. Michael, I was you like, know? what is this? What is this? Oh, oh. my God. Uh, oh, God. You know, it's that. And uh, I think that was the most surprised I've ever been watching a TV show. There was another moment in House of Cards season one that I don't want to do spoilers, but like there was yeah. a very shocking moment uh, where, you know, yeah. jaw was jaw was on the floor type thing. Um, I, I, wa- I want to just get your get your thoughts going into, um, y- you know, there are two things that are making not an enormous amount of sense to me, I guess, in crypto before we kind of zoom out and, and talk about the macro. Um, one, I would love to get your thoughts on the merge because this has become a moment, uh, something that, you know, I've, I find it very interesting, like issues that attract very smart people lining up on different sides of the debate, mm-hmm. polar opposite. Mm-hmm. China's one, Tesla's one, China's crypto's one. one. The merge, in my in my view, has become one too, because there's basically, you know, side number A, which is kind of the Travis side, which is like, this is going to 10,000, right? And this is the, this enormous you know, structural shift in demand. There's like a plus ESG narrative because like 99.5% of energy requirements are moving as we transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, And this is just going to be huge structural inflows. And there's this narrative around real yield, all that kind of stuff. And then there's like, this is going to be a buy rumor, sell the news. These these don't have to be totally mutually exclusive. Like this could just be a timing difference, Uh, you know, but I'd love to get your thoughts going into the merge. And then I want to get your thoughts on NFTs, actually, uh, because that's yeah. another. We talked about this again earlier this week. But what do you, what are your thoughts going into the the merge writ large? Look, I I'm struggling because yeah, I I do believe that mm-hmm. at least for now we are in the multi you know chain world. And, and, and I keep talking about this is it's to me, it's the $64 trillion question, literally, that are we going to have a, a stack like we have, you know, the internet, TCP, IP, mm. FTP, HTTP, SMTP, www. Okay. If we're going to have a stack, then I can, I can make an argument for a stack that is Bitcoin, Filecoin, Cosmos, Polkadot, Solana, Avalanche. I don't know who, which of the, those two is the other two. And then www dot is, is Ethereum. I can make that case. But there's also a case for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, you know, side-by-side stacks. And then you got bridges and, and stuff. And, and again, that's probably the depth of my technical understanding of, of the, the nuance difference. But... I do believe, actually, that Ethereum is an example of the law of increasing returns. Paul Romer won the Nobel Prize for this. That it's not the best technology that wins, the technology that gets the critical mass first. And there's more developers, more products, more related tokens and, um, and activity on Ethereum. Therefore, it, it is in a pole position. But all that is countered by, I, I, I just worry about proof of stake and the consolidation of power. And you're starting with an enigmatic, I don't know if that's the right adjective, but I think so, founder, super smart, 
But again, since we started the conspiracy theory, maybe we'll keep going. Um, was a Teal fellow. Turns out Teal has some connections to some people in different places in governments and agencies. There's a there's a thesis out there, conspiracy theory, whatever you want to call it, that uh, Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, could have a backdoor kind of mechanism. You know, one of the things about that the conspiracy theory of uh, Bitcoin being created by the NSA is, I think we may have talked about this already, but I actually asked someone who probably would know. So Scott Stornetta, who is the most cited guy in the Bitcoin white paper, um, is one of the co-founders of blockchain technology. I mean, he's, he's a big deal. He's a venture partner of ours. And I asked him, what do you think about this theory? He's like, well, I never really thought about it. And I, you know, I went down the whole thing. In fact, if you type in Satoshi Nakamoto into Google, you get Intelligence Central, because Nakamoto is the surname of people from the central region of Japan, and Satoshi means intelligence. So <laughs> it's kind of a little fun fact. He's like, yeah, hmm. okay, fine. It, 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 it could have been created, but here's the problem. There's an air gap. So like the old way we think about software where you could have code in a backdoor where you literally could steal stuff and you know, most of Web 2 has backdoors and, and that kind of stuff. He said, you can't do it. I'm like, okay, makes me feel better. In Ethereum, I don't think that's true. I, I think there could be that. So, so that, that's one thing that bothers me. And then the second thing is you got, you got the XRP heads out there, which came after me, right? Because I, um, I said something on a, on a, someone asked me a question on a podcast about why in our index that we do at Bitwise, um, we exclude XRP and XLM. I said, because of concentration, right? There's a limit. If you're 70% centrally owned, not centralized, but centrally owned, then we won't own you. Same thing with the, the S&P. If, if you're a closely held company, you can't be in the S&P. That's why for years, Tesla, even though it was big enough, couldn't be in the S&P because it was still too tightly mm. controlled because uh, it can be manipulated. So their claim is that, well, if you include all the whales that hid their stakes, and I would put you know, um, Vitalik probably in there, in that group. I think that's who they're referring to. Uh, if you put all their stakes together, they have the same level of concentration as XRP. I'm like, well, first, two things. One, this is not zero sum. <laughs> if Ethereum, and I'm not saying it is, but if Ethereum was as concentrated as XRP, that doesn't make XRP better, right? That That's not how it works. So um mm. I do worry that there is a concentration issue that, that we may not be aware of um, that makes me nervous. And, and so, I, I, so I'm, I haven't gone all in. Right? We own mm. Ethereum. We do. Um, and I have partners who want to play the merge. And I mm. have resisted. And maybe I'll be wrong. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not a trader, so I don't have specific opinions about like price action around the merge. Um, what I would say is the thing that I find myself thinking a lot about is just different. Like one, um, I'm very torn about my my current view. I'm, I have a lot of thoughts on Bitcoin. I don't really want to get into it right now. But like, but but with Ethereum, you, you know, when you when you move to a smart contract layer, um, 
I'm unsure about this like call option on a monetary premium, how much that has an impact uh, in something that's a technology stack. I'm just, it's just something that's totally new and I don't have a strong opinion on it. I also, there are kind of two different models that are emerging, right? There's like this ETH kind of generalized smart contract layer with L2s that help it scale versus the, the, the other ecosystem that's really interesting is a Cosmos type ecosystem where yeah. you have basically a layer zero with different security properties and then app specific chains get built on that. Those are just two different technology paradigms. Um, you, you have typically uh, one technology paradigm ends up winning out over the other. So I, I think there is a difference. There's a, there's a difference. Yeah. In but I you know I don't think these are like mutually exclusive things. There are probably some things that are more well suited for. It's just it's just very difficult. But uh, I think there is no, a difference think- between. I think Michael, that's exactly right. And if if it's if it's the former, right, L one mm-hmm. things built, L twos, L threes, L fours, proof of work versus proof of stake. I'm going proof of work. I, I just mm. I, so you know, DeFi on Bitcoin may make that that landscape not not work for ETH. Cosmos, I do think, has this interesting role. So could we have a Bitcoin Lightning Cosmos something and ETH is up here somewhere as a as an app development platform? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, maybe I could poke at you, though, just because one thing that, you know, I've heard from great investors, of which I know you are one, is that you got to be careful about seeing the world for what it is versus the way you want it to be or think it should be. And I can just tell you from like energies in these different ecosystems, like I love Bitcoin. I still, my, you know, disclosure, my largest holding, like I have an enormous amount of faith in it belief, but like the energy and development that's going into not only ETH, but different smart contract layers is like, and I, I agree. I, I understand. I, I, I See, empathize. I, that there's, I, I agree you know what I mean? That. I'm just like, I'm just like, my eyes are open. You know, I guess just my eyes are open and I'm just watching the amount of uh, innovation and the types of people that are engaging in ecosystem A versus ecosystem B. And for me, I'm kind of just like, how could it's just it's I don't know the. No, Michael, that's that's the key. Right. And it's it's this whole thing about about beliefs. And look, crypto has become religious. Right. We got tribes and factions and and we got holy wars. And, and, and beliefs are formed wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Most people take a belief and then they accept all data that supports the belief and they reject any data that's against their belief. Like, no, that's, that's backwards. Gather mm-hmm. all the data, good data, bad data, good, just gather the data, look at it, marinate on it, ruminate in it, and then make a belief and decide. And to your point, if you just, Look at data and facts. You're like, huh, really smart people, really motivated people, really talented people, have a really clear plan, are actually making real progress. Just development activity, it's just not really close right now. Mm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I would much rather look at data and form a conclusion than form a conclusion and find data to support it. Yeah. I also think one other thing I'm starting to develop a theory around is that, you know, when you have these paradigm shifts or big just changes, uh, when you look through the lens of history, they're often, especially when time has passed, 
they're looked at as like this positive thing happened, right? This right. this is the way right. we used to do it. This is the right. way we do it now. Positive thing X Y Z. When in reality, everything has trade offs. I think associated with it. And usually, you know, I used to view incumbents as like they're just old and lazy and bored and tired, and they don't want to change. But I, but I, and I think part of that's true. But I also think part of it is they they were part of the paradigm shift that happened before that. They yeah. saw the benefits yeah. of that shift, yeah. and they're worried about losing the benefits that that shift occurred. And they're kind of right because, like, let me give like let me give you an example of something that's just social media in general. It, it would be silly for the two of us to sit here and be like, social media should go back because we're never going back, right? But you know, all those arguments about kind of feeling disconnected and levels of happiness. Those are all totally legitimate. Those are completely legitimate completely arguments. Completely real. Completely. You know what I mean? So that's how I kind of feel. Um, I, I want to zone can in tell. on- I, I, I can tell Yeah. when my daughter has been on social media. Mm. Like the moment she walks in a room, mm. I can tell how long it's been since she was on Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's, it's frightening. And- mm-hmm. And look, she survived because she was a little older when it really came out. So she didn't have to go through middle school, high school, which is that really critical period. Yeah. But my son just entered middle school and my youngest son. And, you know, thankfully he didn't have to deal with being a girl in middle school. Because <laughs> I, think, I think social media, I believe this at, at my core, is destroying the the self-image of of young people um mm. and and i think it's going to create huge societal problems in the future mm. just like i talk about the participation trophy generation i think that had huge implications right where parents tried to be your friend and try to make things easy for you and reward every little thing you do i'm like no bullshit. you fail you fail and there are consequences and you should have to do chores and you should not be friendly. I mean, you can be friend. Okay, you can be a friendly, but don't be a friend. I mean, you're not you're not buddies. You're you're parents, and you got obligations. And I and there's no manual, and I get it. And and I don't know. It's just we're in a we're in a very strange place. I saw a great a great uh, little video this morning. Said what what the metaverse would look like in real life. It was a guy panning a square in Europe and it was not metaverse. It was literally real life, but you had the craziest things. There was like, you know, a juggling clown. And so it was like what you would expect would be in the metaverse, all this disparate things, but it was real. Like, well, maybe that's what we should do is engage more in real and not just make up stuff to, to go escape from. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I I would take it maybe one layer down for that. I'm not sure if it's destroy. It's but it's definitely it has a big impact, right? And there are positive aspects of that impact. Like it, it, I I do believe part of what like Facebook and Twitter are saying is like I get a lot out of my. I've basically started to curate. You know, I don't. I I got off Snapchat a little while ago. Um, yeah. I basically use Instagram for memes. I actually use it to just I all I follow is meme accounts and I ping them to my buddies when I'm like, hey, thinking of you, this little meme reminded me of you. <laughs> you know, well, I use it as a way to just like keep yeah. in touch. And then I go on Twitter for for news, basically. And that's how I use social. Um, actually, there's another good one called Be Real. Have you, are you on this? No, <laughs> right. it, it pings you at like a, diff, a random time in the day. Like I would get a notification like right now. 
and I'm supposed to be real. And I take a photo of myself and it does the front and back of the camera and it will, all of your friends, it's just like whatever they're doing during the day. So it actually has this like much more wholesome. It's like, oh, I just see they're like going and getting groceries or like they're at work or like they're in, you know, it's less curated, which is really good. No, I like it. it yeah. It'd be very different than, uh, I can't remember what movie it was, but but there's the scene, it opens with this mm. young girl, like, you know, trying to get this perfect picture. And then she, you know, and, and literally like five minutes, which in a movie is a long time, right? Yeah. And and then she types, just rolled out of bed. Mm. Like, no, no, you didn't. You didn't just yeah. roll out of bed and look like that. You got your hair, you did your makeup, and then you you found the perfect position. And I was at the beach this weekend, and there are these two young women, and not exaggerating, Michael, <laughs> like a long time. I, I, I mm. shouldn't even put minutes on it because it was embarrassing. How long, you know, they're doing the hair flip and trying to get <laughs> the right angle for the and, yeah, yeah. and one. I mean. One, as a dad, I'm like, nope, inappropriate. Pictures of the, of the just inappropriate, right? So that, that's the first, right? Second, you know, it's not like you have to be covered up like, you know, the 1920s, but, but there are bathing suits that are appropriate and the ones that aren't. Mm. And I shouldn't say, you know, anyway, for, for a family beach versus, you know. I hear, I, hear, I hear the point you're trying to make. I, and look, I, you know. It is. I feel like kids are forced to grow up younger and younger and faster and faster, and it's alarming. I can only imagine as a parent, uh, and I'm not sure it's a particularly good thing. I guess I wanna, the one thing is we're all learning how to be expert photographers and understand that's lighting. True, and, you know. So I guess yeah. that's a skill, right? <laughs> exactly. That's that's the silver lining that we come here for. I want to get your uh, opinion on something decidedly non-social media related. Uh, I still think the two most important things right now to be paying attention to. Uh, broken record on this in the economy is uh, housing and uh, the unemployment rate. So this is a chart that was shared uh, by our by our friend uh, Dan Tapiero. So this Ah, is I was just going to say, do you have Dan's chart? And and, uh, it is amazing, truly amazing sometimes how how much we think like we are in that was about to come out of my mouth. Uh, but this is basically a, a, a for those of you who are, are following on, we're looking at just basically a stacked bar chart here of um, you know percentage of housing prices that are either moving up, uh, mostly increasing, flat or decreasing. So if you are following on the video, that's the that's the green bar at the bottom of the chart. The flat is the yellow part, and the orangish red area up there is is largely decreasing from July of twenty one to April of twenty two. I mean, it was like. You know, anywhere from 77 to 89 percent, right, of home prices were increasing roughly like month over month. That started to turn uh, in, you know, April, May of this year, uh, and now you're actually starting to see, you know, it's in July was kind of the first big month, where it's 35 percent of homes decreasing, 45 percent flat, only 20 percent increasing. And this is something that you and I have talked about, right? Like, why hasn't this happened sooner? Because mortgage rates have doubled, you know, in the span of like six months or something like that. Uh, very hard for mortgage rates to double like that with the median home price being what it is and for that to just not move essentially. So, I mean, what, like, I just want to check in, like, what are your thoughts on the housing market in general? I think it's, I think it's collapsing and, Mm -hmm. and I think there's lots of both anecdotal and actual evidence as, as you just showed that would support that. And, you know, Dan's point, which I'll reiterate is 
that is the tip of the spear, right? Housing drives everything, right? Drives consumption, furniture consumption, and leisure consumption, and you know, it, it, it even gets linkages to cars because you get the second garage, so you got to fill it up. And I mean, it it's a huge indicator of of how bad economic activity and this whole mantra that we're going to have this magic reversal. You know, if you listen to all the companies doing their reports, yeah, we missed. Yeah, but it was inflation. It was inflation. But by by third quarter, fourth quarter, we're going to be back to double digit growth. Microsoft, which had zero growth, said we're going to be at 12 percent by Q3. I'm like, no, you're not. You're just not. And mm-hmm. again, you know, lies are interesting things. It's, it's probably egregious to call them liars, but but I think they are. I think all these companies just lie and it's, it's self-preservation, right? Cause their stock options matter to them. And, and it's, it's kind of like, uh, I wish I had the, I wish I could remember where the chart was, but there's a great chart that shows seasonality of earnings estimates. Mm. Like there was one, somebody reported yesterday. Um, I can't remember who it was and it was, on social media as a beat, they lost 36 cents because their estimate was minus 38 cents. Like that, that's not a beat. You lost 36 cents. I mean, you lost money, a lot of money. And if you go back a year, they were saying they were going to make money. So what happens is at the beginning of the year, everybody ratchets up their expectations. Mm. But by September, October, all the estimates are being revised down. Yeah, because there's about a 40%. Imagine that 40, 40% gap between what expectations are in January and what actually happens by the end of December. And yet we all believe that 75% of companies beat. Well, that's not possible. If earnings are always 40% overestimated, then the majority of companies aren't beating. But what they're doing is they're, I would say, you take the high jump bar off the you know, rack, you put it on the ground, you jump over it. Ah, I'm the high jump champion. No, you're not. And so I I think earnings are about to collapse, which is going to be a problem for stocks. I think the Fed, for whatever ill-guided reason, uh, is going to continue to crank on, on rates, which is going to do more harm to housing and more harm to small business. And... I, I don't have any idea. I really don't. I, I've been trying to, you know, think. I actually did a. I was invited to speak at this uh, private equity conference out in in Utah. Really interesting group uh, called Peterson Partners. Really fantastic investors, um, and they had you know, 150 of their investors. You know, very successful people. People who started great businesses. One of my favorite mm-hmm. was a guy that we backed twice. Uh, the guy who started JetBlue. And, and Azul is now back for a third time with a company called Breeze, which is a budget airline and uh, doing great things. But that's the type of people there. And they asked me to speak on uh, the Fed and recession. And so the title of my uh, talk, which you know, I'm a huge Top Gun fan. I thought Top Gun was the greatest movie ever until Top Gun Maverick came out. And now Top Gun Maverick is the greatest movie. I watched it twice on a flight the other day. I mean, 
Like, it's so good. I watched it twice. <laughs> and no, no, it's just so good. And um, so good. I mean, it's just so good. And uh, so the title of my thing was, was you know, Top Gun J-Pow. Or call, I think I did call sign J-Pow. Uh, colon, recession, depression, or soft landing, right? He promised us all soft landing. He's no pilot. And mm. we're not going to have a soft landing. And we're going to have a, a Jaeger landing. You know, Chuck Jaeger mm. said, a good landing is anyone you can walk away from. Mm. I'm like, okay, so you can crash, but as long as you walk away, as long as you don't die. So I don't think we're going to die, but I do think we're going to have wreckage and, and serious wreckage. And, you know, he, I, I, I so I had to, get, my point was I had to get in, try to try to get inside his head because right. I don't know the man. And I tried really hard to, to understand why you would tighten liquidity into one of the greatest reversals in economic activity we've ever seen. And I couldn't do it. I, I, mean, I just, I could not come up with a good reason. So I, have I to feel default. like I could come up with a reason okay. actually. All right. I just think it's his. I just think it's his legacy, right? It's like everyone right now, right? like the Fed is a very political institution, as you and I have talked about for a long time. Like there are, you know, during these periods of inflation, right? This is kind of the what's it like the reason for being for of, of a central bank yeah. in general is, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, is yeah. for price stability to moderate inflation. So we, you know, evoke these periods of history in U.S. history where we had inflation. There's like the Volcker and there's the Burns, and I, I think. Powell sees, right? Like the, I think the panic has started to set in that, oh my God, I do not want to be seen as the Fed chair that ushered in this inflation. And you're starting to see it from other bankers as well. Lagarde gave a speech earlier this week yeah. and it was a similar thing. You know, I mean, these people are worried about their legacies. Um, I mean, it's and literally these are- the arsonist calling the fire department. I mean, literally, yeah. like, like yeah. literally you light the building on fire and then you go get a garden hose and, and you think you're a hero. That's that's amazing because I think that that's probably right. That's that's good insight. You know what? Let me ask you this too, because here's something else that we've talked about: uh, is that the Fed basically looks at central banks, not just the Fed, look at uh, lagging indicators for inflation, right? So they look at lagging indicators yep. for inflation, yep. which is why and and they're a big uh, you know conservative institution, so they're typically behind the eight ball. How the whole point of the Fed is to moderate the business cycle. How are you going to look in the rearview mirror? at indicators that have already happened and, and moderate it. No, it, Michael, that was one of my, that was one of my cartoons. There's this great site, investing.com that does a yeah. weekly cartoon. And that was one of my cartoons. So one of the cartoons was j Powell with this toy plane trying to come in for landing. The other one was a road with a sharp turn and all these danger warning signs. And literally j Powell looking in the rearview mirror. It was exactly as you describe. And look, when you're looking in the rearview mirror and the road turns, you go right off the cliff. And, right. and here's the thing. Inflation's gone. Inflation's gone. Oil prices are 80 bucks headed for 60. We will. Here's the crazy thing. My, my 11 year old son the other day said, wow, gas prices are down a lot. Uh, yeah. You're paying attention to gas prices. You don't buy gas. It's like, and so it must be is myself and my wife must complain. Like every time we pull in to fill up the car, we must have been saying, I can't believe gas. So he's like, look, dad, it's like 360. I'm like, wow, okay. And I believe, and mark my words, gas will be will have a two handle by 
the election, by November or whatever you vote on, 4th, 5th, 6th, whatever the day is, it will have a two-handle because that's the only chance the Dems have of any chance. I mean, and they don't yeah. have much chance, but that's the only chance. And so that is totally reversed. So you go, you know, that will be year over year negative and used car prices just went all the way back. Used car prices mm. are now back to where they were. And the rate of change is the fastest that we've ever seen. Mm. Um, so I, I think that that part is gone. Now, what we still have is the currency devaluation piece, right? The arsonists, Lagarde, Crazy Kurodasan, and J-Pow, they, they created the problem. Yeah. And there's this whole idea that, no, 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 it's not this government spending. It's not the money printing. It's Putin. It's Putin. Are you freaking kidding me? No, it's not Putin. It is you, right? It's the old Pogo commercial that most people are too young to remember, right? We've seen the enemy and he is right. us. <laughs> right. We're the enemy. The, this is the other thing, you know, that, uh, again, in this dichotomy of potential worlds, right, where the Fed raises rates, every, the market, you know, takes the proverbial medicine, and we return to some semblance of normalcy and then kind of continue to do what we are doing. That's like one vision of the future. The other vision is a vision of basically financial oppression, uh, you know, where inflation is allowed to run, uh, you know, over over uh, yields, basically. So, you know, savers get punished, bondholders get punished, and then there are government handouts. And, um, you know, something that I, I don't think got quite enough uh, play. Uh, I think Europe is actually sort of the becoming the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, just because they're in a less advantageous situation than the US. Look at what they're doing. So we have a new prime minister uh, over in the UK. What does she do immediately upon getting elected? There is this enormous, essentially, bailout, which is basically just a government handout uh, to people. And it's like, Look, this is not how Viva. you fight. She is Eva Peron. Oh, Argentina. Yeah. Here, free stuff. Free stuff, electricity, and it's and it's interesting that it's electricity that we're talking about because that's exactly what Argentinian Argentinian dictators did forever is they gave yeah. people subsidized electricity. It's just, I mean, it's pretty nuts. It's uh, you know, this is not a small package. This is a hundred fifty billion dollar package, and this is uh, you know, to bail out, you know, this this is to bail out basically people in the UK, um, and they're also trying to implement price caps. Price caps. This is, I mean, this is something. It's like the canonical thing that you get taught in textbooks that do not work. You do you price caps don't work. Going price back to doesn't work in anything, not anything. Going seriously, Never. like we've got like two thousand years of history and extremely prominent examples, right, for why this happened. Uh, you know, all the, the the favorite time period of time that I always love to do. Rome, you know, in like the two or three hundreds, they tried to do this price cap on on wine. You know, that was like the big yeah. thing because everyone everyone loved to drink the wine. They fixed the price of wine, uh, and, but you know, it's completely neglected to understand that different merchants importing had totally different cost structures. So for some of them, actually, they started you know they quadrupled their profits uh, because it was like, oh my god, I can charge this. Yeah. And other ones were like, I can't make any money on this. There's it completely messes everything up. Greedy merchants get blamed, and it. It's like this just doesn't – this is the classic thing that doesn't work. Uh, I, that's why course, I love doing this show with you, Michael. It, there, is, there are very few people on this planet that can elucidate a point that is happening in real time with real documented examples of the same behaviors and phenomenons 
from 2,600 years ago. I absolutely love the fact that there's nothing new in this world, that you know, we're humans and that we repeat the same errors over and over. But the fact that you are a student of history and we know, right, Churchill was right, you know, bringing it back to the UK, uh, you know, the further back you look, the further for, farther forward you can see. And here we are talking 2,600 years ago, so I think we have, we have the most insight, which is why you need to watch this show and not the others and use Mike 250. Mike 250, baby. Get Full with circle. us. I mean, how could you not want to hang out with us in New York next week? I mean, come on, I don't know. seriously. I don't know. Seriously, it's 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 baffling to me as well. Uh, we have got we've got a bunch of people did sign up, so thank you if you're listening to the show. Use the code. Uh, you guys are incredible. Uh, we'll see you. We'll see you live. Um, but y- you know, it's just it's just disturbing. It's a, it's just another data point in the in the series if of data points. If we had made an is, NFT, oh my god, what we think? Why didn't we mint a Mike two fifty NFT? Should have done it. Should have done. Holy, you know what? Okay, next year. I actually, I'll t- we'll we'll talk we'll talk offline about because uh, we did NFTs the permies for permissionless actually yeah. I have a whole bunch of theories about this but um I want to actually bring this back to crypto for one there's a pretty interesting story that happened this week um which is uh there's a there's a partnership so Coinbase Institutional proposed a an MIP which is a you know maker improvement proposal uh, mm-hmm. on their governance forum where they essentially want to take uh you know. It's like $1.6 billion in something called the PSM, the Peg Stability Mechanism for Maker. Uh, they want to put it in Coinbase uh, Institutional and they want to earn uh, you know, 1.5% yield on it, um, which you can read uh, for those of you who aren't super technical. Maker, Maker DAO is basically a, um, well, there's a, a distinction and vision for what it is, uh, but basically it's a protocol where you can deposit collateral and mint die which is a, a stable coin um the basically the collateral that backstops this protocol is uh usdc and there is something called the psm which is the peg stability mechanism where it's a combination of usdc that's owned by the protocol by maker and then there's some customer deposits basically um it's a balance sheet so some folks at maker are saying hey uh we've got a bunch of usdc which by the way circle is earning an enormous amount of money on it's basically just backstopped by treasuries um we want to earn some of that yield that basically only circles earning. So right now they're just switching custodians. They're moving it over to Coinbase. They're going to earn point and a half of yield, um, which I find interesting. Uh, but I, what the two things that actually makes me think about are one: we've actually completely flipped narratives. If you remember a year ago, everyone said yield is the Trojan horse for crypto. Mm-hmm. Now it's how do we import these yields from TradFi into crypto? Right, right, <laughs> right. Completely flipped. Right. Completely right. flipped. Uh, Love, which is yeah. hilarious. Um, but another one that I would love to get your opinion on, and Jim Bianco has has talked about this before. There's a headline: uh, Stablecoin issuers own eighty billion dollars worth of U.S. Treasuries. And there's a Financial Times article, and they've got these a little bar chart, and they show that stablecoin issuers uh, have own more Treasuries than Berkshire Hathaway, which is pretty. Nuts, uh, pretty crazy, and I guess there are two ways that you could look at this because, in one sense, you could say, "Wow, there." Uh, this is a point that Jim made, which is e- regulators are going to be really concerned about that because these things structurally look like money market funds. SEC gets to regulate those things, uh, and you know that that's not they don't want people to they don't want money those those funds to get big enough because what they're worried about is a run on the bank where Circle, let's say Circle gets to five hundred billion or a trillion dollars. Then there's a run on Circle, then they have to sell $500 billion worth of treasuries. They, the government doesn't like that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, 
so you could say maybe they're going to get regulated. Uh, they're going to get heavily regulated. Yeah. And it's going to be bad. But the other, but the other way that you could look at this is, U.S. is talking about running a trillion dollar deficit into perpetuity. How are they going to do that? They are going to issue treasuries, yeah. but they're going to try, right? They're going to try. No, no, they're no, no, issue I, mean, tre- I mean, no, no, it's your point. You, you can't unless you find buyers, buyers. for your debt. And this is why all the jawboning about we're going to clamp down on this stuff suddenly quells. I think someone did your math. And the other problem is Putin and she, right, done. We're done with you. We're not buying anymore. We got our trillion. We're good. And, uh, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing. Again, something I heard the other day, which I, I thought was absolute genius, that um, what the average person doesn't understand. Actually, maybe you even said this. Somebody said this. Who said this? Um, China is raising the dollar or boosting the dollar to destroy the United States. I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly right. That is absolute genius because what people don't understand is we went from a country that was reliant on imports, right? Where what you want is a strong dollar to a country that now exports. We're the oil producers. Mm. We're, you know, coal producers. We're car producers. And now a strong dollar is killing us. In a world where everyone else is devaluing their currencies to be mercantilist, a strong currency makes you weaker. I go, oh my God, that is absolute genius. Well, historically, when that's happened, there's an accord, right? There's the Plaza Accord, right? Uh, and I actually haven't seen, I mean, the dollar is, you know, hit a 20 year high or something like that, right? And, um, you know, who doesn't love that is Japan. Europe hates that. So, uh, I mean, this isn't conspiracy. I mean, this is like a documented thing that happened, yeah, right? Real um, stuff. The plaza. Yeah. Real stuff. yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, shoot. I had something that I wanted to end on and I just forgot it. Gosh darn it. Oh, NFTs? here's. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, here's what I want to end on. I have been going back and listening to macro podcasts uh, it, that aired like March through May of 2020 uh, because I so wanted good. to see, because I wanted to see how right people were and they were so wrong mark like so and it's like every luminary talking head you can think of that people respect in this space were just except you know who i'll say <laughs> loudly said the opposite dan tapiero there you go <laughs> d tap literally called the bottom of covid uh go. and was like yeah. it's all going up and you know the the arguments that were made back then take your pick of what the arguments were liquidity doesn't equal solvency uh, you know, are what like every everyone was suddenly a virologist. Whatever it was, there was like all these reasons why after the, you know the forty percent sell off, it was going seventy five percent from there. Yep. And when they, those calls were happening, it was like a straight straight arrow up from when these episodes aired, basically into yeah. into Valhalla. Yeah. Yep. And you know, one thing that I've just noticed about macro content, it there is a persistent bearish uh, sway. To it, yeah. um, because That's I think fair. it's easier. And I, so basically, all I'm saying is like, sometimes I feel like you and I get very concerned, but I, yeah. I think there's always reason to be optimistic. Um, I think there's always reason to be optimistic out there. And you know, when you listen to these shows, you know, I just think you should take everything with a grain of salt. And I'm starting to get that vibe with the European 
energy situation. I have no special insight here, but it's like everyone and their mother is suddenly an expert on energy. Everyone's commenting on Europe, how it's falling into the ocean. Yeah. And just something in the back of my head is being like, I've kind of been here before. I've seen this stuff. Ha I've like, why? you know, and that that's not a scientific analysis. I have no special insight, yeah. but like, I just think it's important to, I, I'd like to make it a mission to stem the outrage a little bit, stem the emotions. I want some positive energy putting out there. You know, it's like be the change you want to see in the world. I'm putting positive vibes out there. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I want to do moving forward. Uh, I think it's a possible right. thing to do. So, all right. Um, all right. All I know right. we got to The positive energy show. Um, the positive energy show. We're going to be taking yeah. that positive energy to DAS, by the way. Absolutely. Um, so Mike 250, sign up, join us next week. And uh, as always, best hour of my week. Thanks, Michael. Same. And uh, we'll talk Cheers, to you Mark. soon.